This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InnoVarsity Press. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Why do you want to have Lisa on? We don't have a lot of um, black women who started their own ministries and sustained them that are particularly devoted to issues of concern facing the African-American community. I didn't think I was going to get invited. This is like the stellar podcast. I was just like, man. <laughs> this is the started from the bottom, now we're here podcast. <laughs> uh, when Lisa Fields was just like, I don't know how you want to say it, in the basement with a little <laughs> you know, book background. Now she got her own business <laughs> with her own refreshed logo. Do you have your own building? Yeah, we have an office. I'm in a suite in the office space. At the heart of season two are people who see a problem and create institutions and structures to deal with it. And the Jude 3 project was was um, is one of those things started by Lisa. And so I wanted to just introduce her to our listeners and to have her tell her story. And one thing that I found particularly interesting was the way in which she talked about black apologetics and how there are different sets of issues and concerns facing the black community than may face than other Christian communities might face. And so everybody doesn't have the same questions and it's okay to feel called to minister to African-American Christians and non-Christians who are struggling with making sense of who God is. And so I just thought that was a unique uh, ministry and I want to give it a chance to shine. I would tell you, and this is the reason why you should, Lord willing, be the finale. So the final, the final guest of season two, because in some ways you are a paradigmatic disruptor. Because in, in season one of the podcast, we were talking a lot about um, what does it mean when you see something wrong in a church? And how can you then begin to bring about a change? But then there's a difference between raising the alarm and building something that's sustainable. And so as someone who had built a sustainable ministry, we thought that you would be a good person to talk about what does it mean to live a life before God in some sense that's disruptive. Tell them a little bit about who you are, where you're from, where you grew up. So I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, uh, the best place to live in the world. Except for their football. Not. But their, their football team is like, <laughs> I love y'all. They're kind of trash. <laughs> it's so funny because my parents watch the Jaguars every week with so much hope. And I'm just like, why are y'all still fans? I don't understand this. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you grew up in, did you grow up in the church? Yeah. So my father's a pastor, so I'm a PK. Um, I was even born on a Sunday. So uh, my dad was a minister of music uh, at a large Pentecostal church in the city. And so he left to Oregon to be at my birth. And then he went back to church. Um, wow. He was about, 
They was probably still in the praise break. <laughs> it, was, it was a black Pentecostal church. I used to tell people, I used to think, because like I'm from the black Baptist tradition. Mm-hmm. And I used to think that, you know, the black Baptists, we can get down, right? I used to like, you know, we used to shout. And I used to think that we was really about that Holy Spirit life. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know why these Pentecostals think that they got the Holy Spirit when the Baptists got the Holy Spirit too. Funny, I didn't walk into my first Pentecostal church service for real until like two years ago. Oh, wow. And I walked in there and they dropped a war cry on me. And I, <laughs> I just wasn't ready. <laughs> they started scooping down and doing a little moves and the claps. I was like, wow. This hits different. Dude, your father, I mean, I'm for real, like the black Pentecostals, I used to think they they they, they acting like they, like I got much respect to the black Pentecostal tradition. Y'all worship me. I don't even, I'm not even that Pentecostal. The Holy Spirit got a hold of me. I was like, hold up now. I'm Anglican. I'm, yeah, I, I used to go to a, a real like long Pentecostal church where Sunday school started at nine. After nine, it lasted till like 1030. We had a little bit of a break. We had 11 Half worship time. service. And then <laughs> we got out at like three. So it was like. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I used to complain when I was growing up when I when we would get out at like 1.30. That's what I mean. So we would start at like, I think we had Sunday school like we like y'all did at like 9. Church started at 10.30. And we was out of there by 1. Unless a bunch of folks got saved. And a bunch of folks started getting saved. And that's like, Lord, we're gonna be here all night with these testimonies. So your father, your father was a a, um, a church musician, but he eventually became a pastor. Is he a pastor now, though? So he started. He planted his own church in 1996. So for most of my life, I've been a PK, um, and before that, I was a minister's kid. So been in church. Thankfully, my father's church model wasn't like the church we came from. So our church. Church service was about two hours um, with an hour Sunday school. So I felt like that was a cushion, you know, from 1015 to 1230, you know. But this this was an all this was this was an all black church, correct? Yeah, I've always been an all black church my whole life. And so what was it like growing up as a minister's and then a pastor's kid in a black church? Was there a lot of screw? I mean, was it a, a positive experience for you? What was that like? Um, it was positive. It's just like church goes with you all everywhere you go. So like people that's from the church come visit your home. It's just an all consuming thing. You're there for a a long time after. So when I, I vowed to myself that I would never be in ministry, I said that I wanted to work on Wall Street. And when I worked on Wall Street, I was gonna go to a mega church in New York City and uh, just be in the audience and go home when it was over. That was my plan. And when did that plan change? Um, when I was in college at University of North Florida, I was an investment finance major, uh, really passionate about the stock market because when I was in fifth grade, we played the stock market game and I fell in love with it. What should I be invested in right now if you talk about the stock market? Like, what should I be doing? <laughs> I, I'm not a financial advisor. I, I'm not licensed, so I could probably... No, help, the, help the people. Help the people. Should we be investing now that we're in the middle of, of an upheaval? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been keeping up with the stock market. So, yeah. So, anyways, you, you're, you're thinking about being. I'm just trying. I'm trying to come up during the podcast, so I know that everybody else is trying to like get all spiritually fed. But I got four kids, and so I got to I got to eat. I got. But nonetheless, you. You, you're you're doing stuff at university. I'm sorry, in North in North Florida. You're mm-hmm. interested in financing. What changes? So I take a New Testament course. 
thinking it would be like Sunday school. It's an easy A. I had some electives. And the first day of class, our textbook was Bart Ehrman. So you're a New Testament scholar. You know yes. about Bart Ehrman. And so that was the first time I was introduced to textual criticism. My professor said, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. And that's when I realized that this wasn't going to be Sunday school. Um, Because I had learned the Bible. Um, My parents instilled the Bible in me. So I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. New Testament. It's like Sunday school. And so, man, that rocked my world. And I really struggled with that class. I had like a crisis of faith. And my dad introduced me to Ravi Zacharias, uh, and I started falling in love with apologetics, listening to him and other apologists. And I was like, "Oh man, there ne- where why aren't there any black apologists?" So did you did you notice something like a disconnect? One of the things that I talked about in my book is that it's similar, similar circumstances that happened to me. I ended up becoming an academic. You ended up becoming an apologist. Mm-hmm. Is that you enter this academic world and they're asking different questions, but the questions that 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 you encountered in college feel disconnected from your actual the community that you that you knew and grew up in. Yeah, because nobody was asking those questions. Like, when was the Bible? You know, when was it translated? Um, I never thought critically about like why I believe what I believe because nobody in my circle was asking those type of questions. What kind of questions? What kind of questions were we asking when you were growing up? Like, what were the faith questions that you think were happening? Um, where is God in suffering? Uh, I think was the biggest one. Uh, I think that was the biggest one. Like, does God exist? I don't feel like that was ever yeah. a question. Um, yeah. And so when I got to classical apologetics, I was like, oh wow. I guess people are yeah. atheists, but you yeah. know. <laughs> I, I, it's, 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 it was it was similar because I was thinking. I, I like to tell this story. I was sitting in this room. I was in. Um, I was doing my PhD, and this is at least how I remember it. Maybe it was just a combination of YouTube videos. But I remember these two guys debating. One guy was saying God doesn't exist because of all of the suffering that we see going on in the world. Look at all of these Africans who are going through all of this famine and disease. And the other person was another white guy who was saying God does exist because those Africans over there are Christians. And me being the only black thing in the building was like, well, do the black people actually get a vote? Do we actually get to speak to our speak for ourselves about what's happening in the culture? And it felt like we were just objects like batted to and fro rather than being centers of theological reflection. So you see this stuff, you go to this class and you decide, I know this because I'm your friend. That you're gonna um, that you decide to go to seminary, but you got to explain to the podcast people <laughs> where you decide to go and what the Holy Spirit was saying to you, <laughs> because you made you made a decision that not a lot of black people who grew up in an all black church then decide to do. What does Lisa Fields, burgeoning apologetics apologist, decide to do next? So. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. I actually, after I graduated with my degree in communication, religious studies, I went into finance. So I worked as oh, a banker. Oh, I didn't know that part. Yeah, I worked as a banker okay. for a year, and then I went into mutual funds for Merrill. So I worked for Bank of America, and then I went and worked for Merrill for another year. Then I felt the lean of the Lord to go to seminary. Now, when I so you do so, so you do know about some mutual funds. Talk to me after the podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to come up. That's okay. You so, have Jude three, and then you need like a um. What's your boy's name? Who does all the money um in Christianity? Uh, uh Dave Ramsey. 
Yeah, you need to have like you need to be the black Dave Ramsey, <laughs> but with better principles. But anyway, <laughs> no shade. Much love to David Ramsey, or maybe not enough love. I don't know. It's not, it's not, I was like, can if, you if say you that on feelings, this podcast? Yeah, get out your feelings, David. <laughs> I got jokes. Uh, I don't. I've not listened to the man, so I don't know. I just remember hearing <laughs> the things in the church. So, anyway, she decided to go to seminary. And where yeah. did you decide? So to go? I was teaching apologetics course at my dad's church, and one of the church mothers came up to me and said, "You're really good at this. Um, when are you going to go to seminary?" Now, this is the church mother that always is in people's business, um, yeah. and always just is forcing you to do stuff you don't want to do. And so, normally, I don't really pay her that much attention, honestly. Um, no shade to her. Um, yeah, much love to much love to church mothers. <laughs> um, but uh, she's one of those pushy ones. She, I love yeah. her, but she's just she's really pushy. She has a plan for your life. And so that particular day, I don't know. I felt the leading of the Lord pushing me, um, and that was like I think mid July or the end of June. And so I started looking into seminaries, and I looked at some regular ones like Harvard Divinity and. All those. And so my mentor was like, uh, Lisa, since you did religious studies and you focus your work in more progressive spaces, I think you should spend your seminary in a more conservative space so you could get both sides. Hmm. Okay. And so I say, okay, cool. So I looked and one of my, um, my grandmother does hair and one of her kids, my grandmother's client's kids went to Liberty to play football and it was like, oh, it's a really nice campus, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, they have a seminary. It was one of the cheapest seminaries. They still had open enrollment. So I was like, oh, cool, I'll go. Pull up. Yeah. Their seminary actually is like $2,500 a semester with a cap wow. on it. It cannot exceed that because the founder wanted to make it reasonably priced for everybody. $2,500 a semester. Yeah. Wow. Like twenty seven hundred. It was cheap, so I yeah. was just like, "Well, you can't beat it." So I was like, "I didn't know any of the baggage." So you know, growing up in a black Pentecostal space, like seminary is not pushed upon people. My dad's pastor used to say seminary was cemetery, and mostly because he saw p- black people go to more progressive spaces and come back and don't believe in the Bible anymore. So he took on this posture that we don't need it. That's one of the things that I think people don't understand. Sometimes in um, in white church spaces, seminary represents a clear ideological decision to say, I want to do this or I want to do that. Mm-hmm. But at least in my context, I was the only person who I knew who was actually going to seminary. Everybody else, when they felt the call to preach, they just started preaching until they started a church. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to Gordon-Conwell, um, I, didn't, I didn't really consciously understand all the different like elements of evangelicalism or this or that. So what was it like for you at Liberty? Liberty was an interesting place because, you know, I've been to, I've been in, I was in a black middle-class bubble for most of my life and black Christian middle-class bubble. So Wait, I didn't really have to. Black people could be in the middle class. I thought we were all broken in, in the city. And every, I thought, wait, there's. Was... No, I grew up in the outskirts of Jacksonville. In the black, okay, middle, the black class middle class neighborhood. Yeah. Y'all were bougie. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was. I'm not from the black middle class. <laughs> I'm. I'm from the black broke folks. We were just Baptists, hand to mouth. And so I know about the black middle class. So that's the reason why I'm nice to you, Lisa. But I gotta give you a hard time because you are. You are uppity, as we would say. 
You know, yes. and I embrace that. You know, you are. You, you know, I mean, it's good because like you be on point. I mean, you are. I mean, like you have your stuff together. You got your ministry. Look at you got a real logo. We don't even got a real disrupt. I don't even got a real disrupt this logo. But in the, you guys can't see this. But she has a beautiful studio with a with a sign, and I'm just in my office with some headphones on. So like you can tell who's the real who's the real podcaster. So you go ahead and you and you and you come out. And you graduate and you decide at a certain point you're going to start an apologetics ministry? Yeah. So it's my last year of seminary. I was at uh, Liberty University, which was a totally different experience because I hadn't been around white people. I had two white roommates in college, but I always tell people white people that are not Christians deal better sometimes with race than black than white conservative evangelicals. Because my college roommates that were white were chill. They didn't really say anything offensive. They seem like they knew how to interact with different cultures, but white evangelical people were very different. And so, what was that difference? Say something about. And I think, and I, by the way, this is this is um, this is covered in like every statistic that the people who are most resistant to the idea of racism in the United States being a persistent major problem are like white can white the white conservative portion of the Christian church. Mm-hmm. So like that's just like a fact. I mean, people might get in their feelings about it, but that's just like that's reality. The be- I just saw this one. Anyways, I, yeah, actually, I saw this one study. I need to go back and look at it before I cite it. But there was a, there was a um, an interview. There was a, there was a question of who um, is the most persecuted group of people who experiences the most persecution, and it was like the the people on the subways were, were white Republicans who watch Fox News. I think that was the, that was the name of the group. And they had Christians being like the highest number and like beneath that way beneath. I think it was like black people were like beneath them. And so there is a sense to which there is a persecution complex to sometimes exist in parts of the Christian church. And so that's what you experienced when you were in college or seminary. Yeah, they just were. They didn't. They would say have a lot of microaggressions like, do you know your dad? Like, is this your hair? Like stuff like that. And it's just like, why are you asking me that? Um, because I guess it was like their interaction with black people was very limited. Um, and so that, that was interesting. But so the last year of seminary, um, I started a G3 project because I wanted to bridge the gap between, in apologetics between, um, for black people. I felt like our questions and concerns weren't being addressed. If they were, they weren't really being addressed thoroughly or with nuance. And so that's why I decided to start a G3 project. Hey, why you call it G3? Yeah, people ask me that all the time. And, you know, the two key apologetic passages are 1 Peter 3, uh, 15 and Jude verse 3. And, you know, there's no chapters in Jude, so it only yeah. makes sense to Jude 3. And I went with Jude 3 over First uh, Peter because I originally had an idea of a logo in a, a, in a uh, boxing ring. And it really, it was okay. a shallow reason. It wasn't like God spoke to me <laughs> and said, call it G3 Project. It was just like, I was thinking yeah. about graphics. I ended yeah. up scrapping that graphic because yeah. I was like, that looks contentious. But <laughs> yeah. I had already got sold up the name, so that's where we went. So you said that there was a gap in apologetics between mm-hmm. like the classical um, issues related to apologetics and um like what was going on in the black community like what would you say was the biggest disconnect between what goes on in classical christian apologetics and the particular questions that are going on in the black community i just felt like the classical apologetic method was focused on god's existence it was just everything was dealing with atheism 
uh, for the most part. And I'm not saying people don't deal with problems of suffering, but it always came back to if you if you can't explain suffering, then you go to atheism. Like, yeah. you know, or there would be people who were kind of nitpicky and focus on Buddhism yeah. or Islam or, you know, different things. But everything had to do atheism. And I was just like, I think this could be a broader if black people don't, if they're not really buying um, into atheism by large. Now, they might buy it to a higher power, but just got agnosticism maybe more, but not atheism. And so I was like, that's one of the disconnects. And then just how they uh, answer the questions of the problem of evil. I was once sitting in a lecture and uh, this was a prominent scholar that's done a lot of work on the problem of evil. And he has some great stuff to say. It's helpful resources. And he's talked about all the evils in the other countries. But when he got to America, the only evil he named was abortion. And I'm looking like... Racism? <laughs> slavery? Yeah, slavery, Trans- yeah. <laughs> Jim Crow. I, you yeah. named, like, he was thoroughly listing all the atrocities in, like, Asia, like, Africa, and all of that. And I was like, America one, only had abortion? Like, One thing that I really believe, um, and this is weird, and I need to say this in, like, I'll say it the way that I say it the way that I feel it today. Sometimes we treat America like some people treat America like it's exempt from the fall. And people who have actually high doctrines of human depravity, mm-hmm. like somehow puts American history in a different bucket in the sense that they don't really want to wrestle with the profound capability of even, yes, Americans to do evil. It's like an implicit doctrine of American exceptionalism that permeates the entirety of the discussion, such that even our sins, we believe uniquely that America just overcomes stuff and then it goes away. So, like, we just were racist and then it goes away. We were sexist, then it went away. We were, you know, and so I just think that there is this blind spot that exists sometimes in culture. So you see this, but what is it like then as a black woman trying to make her way in a largely male and largely white discipline, which is apologetics? What has that been like? It's been interesting. Now, I can say that some of my, even though I do criticize some white conservative evangelicals, some of my uh, some of my best aid has come from white conservative evangelical men. Yeah. I'll say that um, Craig, uh, there's a, a, a gentleman that's over the apologetics department at Biola. I, he was one of the first people to, to give me a platform. Um, and I just really randomly emailed, because I used to have this habit of email, finding email addresses of leaders and organizations okay. and just sending them emails. Yeah. And um, I sent him one and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, this is fantastic. And he um, gave me a seat at the table. Um, at that seat at the table, it was very interesting conversations. But I do think that with white men, older white men, they ha- are less fearful of me than they may be another black male. Okay. So I do think the power dynamics um, are le- um, have caused them to be a little bit more gracious to me than they have been to some of my black brothers. But I do think that's kind of them feeling less threatened. Less if threatened that makes by sense. you. So have you found support? Has the black church and black people been 
Were all they supportive of you? As yeah, far as I what think, you tried to do? Have they, has it resonated well? I think it's just different versions. So, right? So there may be black men in maybe a more evangelical reform space that may have some resistance because they are so dogmatically um, complementarian that yeah. they that me leading the organization doesn't connect with them. And so every move I make is under scrutiny or they feel like, like there's people that say things to me that then I've had my male friends be like, they would never say that to another man, even if they disagree. So that's been a challenge. Um, but I think it just depends on where people's theological convictions fall and where they believe a woman's quote unquote place is. And so yeah. some men have a hard time with me leading an organization. Hey, everybody. Producer Richard Clark here. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know about another podcast they've just launched. It's called the Every Voice Now podcast. Every week, Myla Kim and Ed Gilbreth showcase the stories of how authors of color manage to write and publish their books. Who's this podcast for? I think people of color who want to write and who feel alone in that journey... How do I get my foot in the door of an industry that I know nothing about and where my networks don't even touch? I think we want to give a voice of hope to those people. Here are authors of color who've paved the way, who also have been in the place that you have been, who felt alone and lost in that journey. But they're published authors, and I hope that can give a sense of hope to authors of color or people who want to write. I also hope for just a general audience to see how God is working in all communities to tell unique stories and the need in the publishing world for gatekeepers to be more open to those different expressions, those different voices. One of the things I love about recording The Disruptors is that I get to be a token white guy a little bit. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I'm not centered in the story, right? I think a lot of people like that about the disruptors and i think that's one important thing about this podcast is it's not centering the people who are typically centered it's centering people who are usually in the margins and i think that can be really valuable you can subscribe now to every voice now anywhere you get your podcast you speak of the emails i think you just randomly emailed me one day so like i think that's how we first got connected <laughs> A couple of years ago and believe it or not i think the first video interview of any form of fashion that i ever did before there was a disruptors before um reading while black before any of that came out it was actually you who emailed me randomly and said hey would you come and talk about like how to do scholarship or something like that i think that was the topic and yeah. so i've seen it growing from that to courageous conversations um, which is kind of a, a dialogue between um, black conservatives and black progressives around issues that are pressing. I've seen you engage like um, different, like traditional apologetics topics. Like what would mm-hmm. you say is like the future of not just you three projects, but like black apologetics more broadly? I think the future is bright. I think more people are seeing like that it, when they see themselves, they know that they could do it. You know, you always need an example. Like when we saw President Obama and specifically for me, Michelle Obama as a first lady, you're like, oh, like somebody that looks like me can be that, yeah. uh, can be the president, can be the first lady. And so I think when um, when people see black people doing um, apologetics, they're like, oh, I could do that too. I, because I never saw myself. When I looked up apologetics, I always saw William Lane Craig or, yeah. you know, 
these other people and they all look like white men um with the exception of Robbie who's but it's all looked like men um and not people of color not black people and so when people start to see themselves they're like okay that gives them something they can move towards i'm sure you have that same experience when people see you as a new testament scholar they're like oh i could be a new testament scholar too yeah i think i think i think that yes when it it relates to be a new testament scholar there just aren't a lot of us Mm -hmm. and i think you know this too one of the things that's really hard is when you are in some sense, I, I mean, I'm by no means a, poly, a pioneer. There's been generations of Black New Testament scholars before me. But we're still, it's still young enough to say that, like, you know, it's a 50-year-old, there could have been 50 years, maybe 60 years of Black people who've been getting jobs and making progress in biblical studies and tenure positions. And mm-hmm. so apologetics, as, as related to directly African-American apologetics, still feels pretty new. But I'm talking mm-hmm. about, as, as you look at, like, issues and concerns and unaddressed like problems what do you think is the future or the next steps in black apologetics in that context like what do you think there's the important work that has it that still needs to be tackled i think really engaging more in why people um believe that christianity is a white man's religion i think we've done so much work on that but there's still so much work to cover because within that, there's nuances and <laughs> to that. So you have the unbelievers view. Then you have the Christian view of yeah. orthodoxy is a white man's religion. Um, and so I think just continuing to provide robust responses to that. But I also think, you know, African spirituality is the new thing right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Hebrew Israelism, you know, was a big thing. And I mean, it's still a big thing. But I do think more people are grappling with African spirituality or just syncretism, mixing it all together. And so I think helping people navigate and seeing the need, I think, for God in their life, because I think so many people live a pragmatic life. And so they don't see the need of the God of the scriptures in their life because they haven't seen it work for other people in the way they felt it should. One of the things that I've noticed is that I haven't seen, and this is one of the things that's kind of like, it's been difficult, is people study academically, formally, like these other big theological, religious, cultural questions. Mm-hmm. But you don't see a lot of kind of like black intellectuals or so-called black intellectuals and 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 scholars addressing things like, these issues do you see like a need for more black academics to address these questions directly yeah i do and i think it's hard because people are making stuff up with pseudo scholarship that nobody really takes seriously on a academic level so it's kind of like why would i even bother with that why would anybody believe that and so (laughs) i think that's been the response from many academics yeah i know it's like well and my pushback is like it's a lot of people that believe this i I, mean i know you think it's stupid but it's a lot of people the amount of times that lisa has called me and said will you do a podcast on this i'm like what do they believe (laughs) (laughs) what do they say about these deuteronomic curses come on man come on like and so like it is but I, i i do think that you're right that like it's it's an important ministry of um of pastoral care and attending to the felt needs. So the other thing that's like and and I and I talk about this in 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 reading my black, as I mentioned the dual it shows you the influence of like Lisa Fields. Here's where you come into the book. Um I talk about the dual apologetic that African Americans have to deal with. 
mm-hmm. that we have to understand like the classical questions. So on your podcast, you deal with like the scriptures and where they came from and the Nicene Creed on one end, and you have to deal with like the kind of um, African spirituality. So like the other thing that makes black apologetics unique is that you have to deal with criticisms that like sometimes other people don't. So I don't know how often like white apologists are criticized by white secularists saying Christianity is the white man's religion. But like black people have to take that critique on board over and over again and struggle to make Every sense day. of it. Every day. <laughs> so do you ever get tired? I mean, is it ever just hard to say, you know, man, <laughs> there's there will always be another heresy. Like what keeps you going as an apologist um, and that, that keeps you from giving up? I think the are the students we engage, um, especially college students, hearing them say on we do a historically black college and university tour, hearing them say, man, like I was almost about to walk away from Christianity, but this presentation just pulled me back in. It gives me this uh, imagery of Jude when he says pulling them from the fire. Yes. And I just when we're when we're interacting with students, that that's what gives me joy. We're we're about to produce uh this is exclusive information. Look at this. You, we're gonna uh, have a drop. Yeah. Okay, drop it. Drop yeah. drop the data. So I had an idea to interview five um black uh millennials that no longer go to church and we're titling it Why Why Don't I Go? And I have the two producers I hired. They no longer go to church. I know them. Um, but I wanted it to be authentic to the experience of people who no longer go to church and just the conversations that I'm able to have with them about faith and why they don't go. And some of it is, you know, personal experiences. But those kind of conversations get me excited because it's like y'all can argue with me. Uh, Christians can argue with me about my methods, but I'm really passionate about getting these people, um, pulling them from the fire. And that's always been, you know, kind of my approach to engage with people who no longer go to church in radical ways. So in college, when I was in camp um, with my friends, I used to go doing evangelism to the club at 12 o'clock midnight in the parking lot, sharing the gospel. You might have evangelized me at one point. I might have heard a a whiff (laughs) of the gospel in the background. (laughs) (laughs) 12 at, at, I mean, 11 p.m. to 2 in the morning, like praying for people in My the goodness. club parking lot, not going in. I feel like the worst I've Christian. Always had- I was in there. I was in there. I'm letting you know where I was at. <laughs> The but Lord, the Lord had my- mercy upon me, though. I'm not there anymore. I'm just saying, like, I wasn't doing that. God bless you. <laughs> So I would spend my, my whole days in college, you know, you have that radical zealous phase, would be going to the worst neighborhoods in town. No, I didn't have that phase. sharing the gospel. <laughs> I grew up in that neighborhood. Knocking on people's doors. And I'm like, they're like, you going to that neighborhood, you kid? And I'm so naive, like, to the fight, the violence, because I didn't grow up in those type of neighborhoods. So I'm like, it looks okay in the in the daytime. Okay. Like, nobody's <laughs> okay. Nobody's doing it. So I was, I was sharing the gospel with them, knock door to door, just knock on random people's door in the hood, okay. in the worst neighborhoods. Okay. God bless and you. And then spend still the, here. the evening in the club. There we go. Not in the <laughs> yeah. club, outside the club. Let's keep it. No, out, outside the club. Yeah, oh, I want to get clarity oh, to man. that. That's amazing. But, so I've always had this radical approach to engaging lost people. And so I think the criticism that I receive, while it is valid, I'm just like, man, it's too many people who are on the wrong road. And we have work to do to be arguing about petty stuff. 
So what is it like then, because your ministry is focused on the particular concerns of black believers and black non-believers, and it's mostly people who attend kind of historically black churches, mm-hmm. but you were trained in kind of an evangelical space. Mm-hmm. And, and apologetics is a largely like evangelical, like it's an evangelical, um, almost discipline, you want to say. So what's it like mm-hmm. to be like someone who's trying to function in a black church space, but who finds himself adjacent to evangelicalism? How does that affect how you move? Um, I move with a lot of uh, strategies. So people like, I don't know. I think people think I just be doing stuff, but there's strategy behind (laughs) (laughs) every move I make. But I, but I consider myself a bridge builder. Yeah. So whether that be between progressives and conservatives or between white and black, um, between theological understandings, I try to keep, uh, I try to keep rapport in each setting because I know that if I'm going to have credibility to build a bridge, I have to keep that rapport. And I do think what I've done with Courageous Conversations and the work I've done as an organization uh, wholly really pushes back against the narrative that I'm a whitewashed um, organization. I think if I was solely doing apologetics from a white evangelical lens, I wouldn't be doing Courageous Conversations. I wouldn't be doing half the stuff I'm doing. And I think my work testifies to that. One of the things that I think is important is, and this is just like, you don't got to say it. I can say it because I'm sitting here and they can, people can get mad um, at me is there's like interesting power dynamics that exist in like, especially within like black Christian spaces where it is, it is simply like a matter of just historical and theological fact that significant portions of the black church is relatively theologically traditional. Um, that it combines what our buddy Justin Gibney calls orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And so sometimes, like, the fact that that voice um, or the ministry that you do is lifted up, people who come from the more progressive strand of the church want to criticize it by calling it white. But it's possible for Mm -hmm. a black person to come to believe these things are true on their own. It's, It's paternalistic to assume that, Black people can only come to certain opinions if somebody white told them that, and so mm-hmm. I just as I believed all these things before I went to live. Yeah, that's what I mean. And so like, I, and I, <laughs> I I believed it before I went and did my PhD. The whole point of my book is like, look, this you 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 from you from Florida, chapter one. The South got something to say. It's okay. Like I think that we have to stop apologizing for believing the things that our parents and our grandparents taught us. And not in a sense of a naive, I'm like not attending to criticism of difficult questions, but that there is a continuity between the faith that we received and the faith of our ancestors. And so I just, I, I mean, I get it. And I know that like, we're always dealing with that criticism, but at this point I'm comfortable in my own black skin and if they don't like it, they could, you know, just, you know, stay mad. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I really have a, an, a, I've moved to this, especially this year, an unapologetic way of thinking about this, because I'm like, even in your, even the progressive pushback I get, I'm like, your eschatology tells me that I'm going to heaven no matter what, and I'm loved by God no matter what. So, <laughs> your, whole, your whole system is like, I'm good, so we fine. So, 
<laughs> That's how I either feel way about it. Go, I just either way it go, I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> Pretty much, you know. I, I've, I've yet to say that to somebody, but I wonder if I say that, how that conversation goes. Because it's like, what, what can you? <laughs> you probably should. You probably should. <laughs> You probably should. It's, I'm not. I mean, I'm not. That's no. The, but I mean, if you think about it, I'm just like, what is the consequence? Yeah. What? What? The other thing. The other <laughs> thing that I really don't want to do because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's going on in society, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of problems to be addressed. And I just don't like arguing with black people. Like, I mean, like in public, like that's just not my idea to essentialize blackness and then say that everybody who doesn't fit in my small definition is somehow like less black. And so for mm-hmm. me, it's more of if you are in your feelings about that, God bless you, feel the things that you feel, but I'm going to do the best that I can to do what God calls me to do. So Lisa, let me, I want to ask, I want to ask you this then. So if you said like Jew three project was wildly successful, everything that you hoped and dreamed occurred, what would be the outcome of the fruit of your ministry? I hope that I would be found uh, faithful that I would make it to get to all the places. <laughs> Not the uh, glory. I mean, because, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying because sometimes ministry success can be a curse to the person that leads yeah. it. Um, and the fact that you you get all these goals and you become a private failure. Yeah. Um, so I hope to be found still faithful yeah. <laughs> doing in private what I proclaim in public. Uh, so I think that to me would be the ultimate success. But also I think many people would be snatched from the fire. Yeah. Um, that's the goal, right? And and many people will be equipped to to better defend their faith and to articulate that to others with grace and truth. Yeah. Uh, we're not trying to create theological monsters over here. We're trying to create people that love God, this, that follow him, and also share him with others. And so I think that that would be the the goal. Yeah, I think I don't know. I don't know if I count as a public figure yet, Lisa. <laughs> um, but I don't think I do. But it is like it is true that like I don't know why I really don't. People think the public platform is going to give them joy or it's going to fulfill them. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'm thinking about social media or like doing things like what we're doing right now on the podcast and doing interviews. And I just think, you know what? I just want to get from one end to the other to this with my integrity intact. I don't want mm. people to say that like, I listen, I'm a human being, so I'm going to make mistakes, but I want people to say that the things that Esau talked about, um, that he did his best to live. And mm-hmm. like, when you said that, that's maybe that's the reason why, why, why we can spirits. It's like, yeah, like ultimately what matters is like the faithfulness of our testimony. But even though you say that, your your work has been a tremendous, tremendous benefit. So I'm going to I'm going to close the podcast by just saying I am grateful for your friendship. I remember uh, when I came back from my Ph.D. and I was um, I had been in Scotland for three years and I done all of this academic stuff. And I was saying to myself. God, I just need to find some black people. <laughs> I need to be able to put my scholarship in the conversations in, that that are in like black spaces that are trying to think through what it means to be a Christian. And then got an email from Lisa, and it was like your podcast was my first kind of roll back into 
um, like ministering directly to the needs of black and brown people in this in in my own small way. So I just want to say thank you so much. And then I threw you into apology, uh, courageous conversations. <laughs> yes, you threw me to apologize. <laughs> oh man, yeah, correct. I threw you into courageous, courageous conversations. Yes, I remember all of that. So no, it, it it has been. I would say that like seriously, I can't tell. I mean, you got you got a shout out in my book. You got like you're in the dedications on page one. And so, like, it's like Lisa and T. Right, my mom and my daddy. I mean, like, you you're in there because I really do think I appreciate. I think that it. you're an important ministry, and I pray that God. I pray that you never get weary from doing good because you will reap your reward in the fullness of time. So, thank you so much for coming on the Disruptors Podcast, and maybe I can I can get you to do it again sometime. Yeah, anytime. I didn't realize how much of an evangelist Lisa was. At the core of who she is, she wants to introduce people to Jesus. When I asked her, you know, what do you hope comes out of your ministry? I thought she could have said, you know, I hope that there's a Jew 3 documentary on Netflix one day or that we have 100,000 followers on Twitter. But she said, you know, like I want to leave this thing with my integrity intact. The strength of her conviction towards having a holistic Christian witness Lisa leads an HBCU tour. She goes from black college to black college to black college across the country. Too often when you hear about evangelical ministry to to urban areas, it means let's just go to where the poor black people are. And so she's an important manifestation of the black middle class from the black church, from an intact family that is now out serving the church in the world. And so she calls into question the stereotype of what it means to minister to black people. This really is a season about how do I press on beyond the initial moment of disruption to a lasting witness. Just to get me to the end campaign, Beth Moore and her ministry. You had Lisa Fields and her ministry. You actually had David Swanson who pastors and has an ongoing relationship, obviously with the church. And Alan Noble, each person created something to address an issue and continued in that ministry over a long period of time. Even Taylor Schumann is still engaged in dealing with gun advocates. Maybe anyone who's listening to season two can say, maybe there's something that God is calling me to that he might use for his greatest glory to disrupt the church. And once again, the disruption is intended to lead towards a more faithful church. So that's the end of season two. It has been a joy to talk to y'all. Shout out to Richard Clark the best producer on the planet. Shout out to Cray Allred, not to be confused with Luck Cray, who is also on the podcast. Shout out to our boy Cray. Shout out to the Useful Group. Shout out to IVP. Shout out to Helen Lee. Shout out to Jeff Gissing, the OG Jeff Gissing. Shout out to Andrew. Shout out to Myla Koo. Um, Seriously, I want to thank everybody who has helped with the podcast and who I want to say shout out to the listeners who have um, done it. And season two has been a tremendous amount of fun. Thank you to all the guests. And we out season two. Season three, it would really be really interesting to see what disruption looks like under a Biden presidency. There's going to be a shift in energy. And me and my friends have already talked about this. Because of the particular cluster of issues that were arose over the last four years, 
there could be like a detente between between Christian conservative or traditional Christians who cared about justice, more progressive Christians who cared about justice. And so we could agree on certain things. I think that we might find that that agreement arose from different worldviews and different principles and that we might find ourselves in disagreement about other things. And so seeing the ways which the Christian witness might shift and change over the next three or four years is something I might be interested in seeing, but we'll, we'll see. God bless y'all. Good night and good luck.